Hey everyone, you're listening to episode 54 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today we're talking with Andy DeWitt, the author of Radical Giving, among other books, and a former oral surgeon. Welcome to the show. My name is Cody, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Keelan. In this interview, we sat down with Andy DeWitt, a formal oral surgeon who set a financial finish line along with his wife before even stepping into his first job. He has thought deeply about finish lines and generosity and has much to share on the topics. He's also authored several books, including Radical Giving, and now spends much of his time helping people share their own stories through coaching and ghostwriting. Stay tuned to hear what he has to share. Before we get started, you know this podcast has grown almost exclusively by word of mouth. For those of you who have helped us get this message out there by sending a link to a friend or sharing on social media, we just want to give you a big thanks. It really makes a difference. If you think this or any of our conversations are thought-provoking or inspiring, take a second to share it with someone who might need to hear it. We've been blown away at how God has used some of these stories to make a radical impact in the world of generosity, and you very well might be a link in that chain. With that, let's get to the interview. All right, we're here with Andy DeWitt. I got a chance to meet Andy at the Generous Giving Conference earlier this year, and we had a wonderful conversation. I said, Andy, I'd love to set up a time to share your story on the Finish Line podcast. And Andy, you said, I'm in. And so here we are. I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you for being with us. Hey, thanks. Happy to be here. I'm hoping you can start us out just telling us a little bit about your own story, how you grew up, your faith background, just telling us about yourself. Yeah, well, first of all, when you told me the name of the podcast while we were just chatting, I just kind of giggled a little bit inside because the finish line is such a big part of my story. And you guys are the finish line podcast. I got to be a part of this. This It's fantastic. So I grew up in a wonderful Christian household, and my folks were really great models of Christian living. Tithing was just a normal part of life. Prayer, family, Bible studies, you know, they just did a lot of things very, very well. At one point, they actually had a family meeting to see if my dad was going to leave his military career and go be missionaries. And so that all, to me as a kid, seemed like the most normal thing ever. So for me, as I progressed through school, I had a a uh, vision to be an oral and maxillofacial surgeon. So I stayed in school until I was 31, kind of like you, Keelan. I mean, <laughs> you, you just finished. Are you 31? 32. <laughs> so I got out a year before you. <laughs> and by the time I finally finished residency, I was 31 years old. I never had a job because I did school all the way through. And I had a ton of debt. And I was married with one child and one on the way. He was born just before we finished. And so we're looking for a job. And I had a heart to be a medical missionary. I thought that's where the good stuff is. I want to be like Dr. Gary Parker, who worked for Mercy Ships for years and years doing cleft lip and palate surgery and all this other big surgery. So I, I actually lined up a fellowship so that I could get fully trained in all that stuff. And 
I also was looking at being a professor and I, I did a couple of things looking into being in the teaching roles. And then a third avenue I had was being a uh, private practice guy. And the benefit of that would be higher income, a lot more free time, a lot more flexibility. And the downside would be I, I'm not involved in missionary work. I'm not involved in teaching. And that's, those are the things that were my heart. So I was struggling because I had interviewed it multiple places and I had multiple opportunities. And so coming up on actual decision time and I had told my wife about it. I told some friends to pray about it and took a, a rare day off. You know, how often you get days off in residency? It just, you know, doesn't happen much. So we had a full day off and I just went to a little area just south of town. It was a place called Goose Island. And I just said, okay, God, what do you want me to do? I really would love to do the missionary thing, full-time missions, part-time mission. I, I don't know. Uh, I'd love to do the professor thing. I'd love to do the private practice thing. And if the money came along, I, I don't I don't know what to do. I'm just, and it was as if he was standing in front of me, just talking out loud. He says, Andy, take the job in Dubuque, Iowa. That is for you. I said, whoa. Okay. Well, what about the finances? And here's how you're going to do your finances. You know, First two years, you're going to have a set salary. That's your associate salary. And then when you buy in as a partner, your salary is going to go up. And as that salary goes up, that's what you give away. You live on that associate salary and give away the rest. And it just opened up my whole world. And I thought, well, God, what about other things? I mean, what about saving for retirement? And he answered, he said, you would save for retirement like from your savings and from the office chipping in, just like everybody saves for retirement. Well, what about college savings for the kids? That would come from your side. Well, what about missions? If I go on a mission trip, well, that would come from the giving side. And so we had this conversation back and forth. And I kind of felt like Abraham when he was talking about, uh, will you destroy the city for 50 people? Will you destroy the, the city for 40 people? And after a number of back and forth, I just felt like I had this really clear vision I'm not just where I was going to go. I thought, okay, I'm going to take the job in Dubuque, Iowa. That's settled. But what was even more important to me that I was settled that I know how I'm going to be generous because I've got a plan. And the plan was very well set. And it was a plan that God gave me. And so I'm, I'm good with that. So then it was a little interesting. I'm a year into this, figuring out practice. And I think, oh, shoot, I probably should get a financial advisor because my plan will be different than other people's normal plans. So I ask around town a little bit, meet with some people, and they just kind of shake their heads and, you know, why would you want to do that? And then I ended up meeting a gentleman, uh, Rich Vandersand, a friend of a friend, basically. And Rich has now become a good friend. And I meet one-on-one -on -one with Rich. Actually, it was two-on-one because my wife came with me, and we're sitting in this coffee shop, and Rich is very teacher-oriented, and he's teaching us about finances, about personal finances, about investing, about all the stuff that you would teach a guy who's just fresh out of residency and doesn't know squat about money. <laughs> so he's got a little flip chart, and he's, okay, here's your income, and here's another page on the flip chart. Here's the concept of stewardship. God owns it all. And I said, wait, 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 Rich, I got to tell you a story. <laughs> so I told him the Goose, Goose Island story. And I, I get into the whole story and I said, and then God told me and I, I asked this. And he says, okay, good, good. 
he flips the flip chart and he says finish line right on the on his flip chart. I said, yeah, yeah, I didn't know it had a name. <laughs> so he, we were on the same page, absolutely on the same page, because he was trying to teach me about the concept of a finish line in our very first meeting. And it was it was beautiful because it was what God had already very clearly showed me that this is how we are going to live because God gave us this clear direction. So that's a impressively clear entry into a finish line from the get-go. And I'm interested in hearing a step back from that. I know you said you grew up in kind of a culture of a strong faith background and, and generosity. Was there uh, something along the way before you got to the point of, a, of setting a finish line here that really kind of drew you into generosity or where God was kind of working on you back a couple steps before you got there? Oh yeah, this is not this is not our first foray into the the deep weeds of generosity. God had been working on Anna and I for a long time. When we were in school and then residency, we were basically living off of loans and trying to keep meager salary. And Keelan, I love your story. How you you were actually real specific, and we spend this much, and then when you get to residency, all of a sudden you paired everything back. So I love your story because it's just inspirational. And our story was similar to that. Since we had nothing, it seemed to be easier to give. And we had a hope that we would get a salary eventually in the future. But, you know, (laughs) all kinds of fun stories about we went to Dairy Queen to get a special date because we had saved up $4. (laughs) (laughs) And she's looking at her ice cream code. And she makes this nasty face like, oh, this is terrible. And I'm looking mine so happy. I like her. I said, oh, wow, that was bad. It tasted, tasted like pee. It was bad. And we, this is our, our several weeks of savings to get, you know, four bucks. So she kept on eating it. It was, I, I had to actually take it away from her because you can't have this. And we shared our back. But so yeah, we had plenty of times that we didn't have money. And the church that we were going to was a startup church while we were in school at Iowa City. And they did a wonderful, capital campaign saying it's not about equal giving, it's about equal sacrifice. And they taught a lot, probably a good three months about stewardship. So I learned it from my folks. Anna, my wife, was a pastor's kid. Her mom put the tithe check up on the kitchen bulletin boards as a very obvious, hey, we are tithing, we are giving. So tithing and giving was normal and 10% was a good starting place for both of us. So when the capital campaign came, that's when we finished school and I did a, a one-year internship between school and residency where I basically was getting a little bit of a paycheck for the first time. And along came the equal giving, equal sacrifice. And for us, it wasn't really a sacrifice to give because we never had a salary before. And I looked at that and I said, this would be a first fruits if we gave our whole first check first fruits of our career. So I've actually, I told that story in, in, in the book I wrote, but that I, I didn't feel comfortable telling it this way because it was, it was almost too personal. So I told it in kind of a third person kind of way, but we gave our first salary check as a first fruits and it went to the, the campaign and they ended up building the building and everything went very well. But from us, it was a entry into larger giving. And the next time that we were at a church with a campaign, my wife and I just looked at each other and instead of saying, well, should we give? The answer was, 
What's God asking you? What's God laying on your heart? So even when we were in residency making not much, God had already laid it on our hearts to be generous. So then when the big news came, the finish line came, it was not a surprise. If that was the first time anybody hears about, you know, generosity, oh yeah, that'd be that'd be a little much. <laughs> <laughs> so Andy, tell us more. You have this two-year period where you have a set salary and you've been instructed to live at that standard of living going forward. And then after two years, you become a partner in the practice. What was that transition like? I was in a great practice. Two of the guys that were in the practice were already doing mission work and they were traveling all over the world. And it was one of the things that drew me to the practice. So I started going on trips with them and uh, going on trips on my own. And we started doing a lot of mission work. And we also had a new paycheck that came in and with uh, additional money, all of it went to pay off school loans first. Actually, that was part of the, the conversation back and forth, the, the Abraham conversation that I mentioned. And so school loans got paid off. And then we opened a donor advised fund through uh, National Christian Foundation and started adding money in there. And then very quickly, we had to figure out, okay, what, where do we give? How do we give strategically? And then it ended up with a whole new set of questions. Oh, gosh, this isn't just given and, and you're easy. This is given. We got to be responsible with more like the, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. I don't think that's originally from the Spider-Man movie. I think it's actually from Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm also curious what that initial conversation was like with your wife when you first told her about the idea of a finish line, because I'm, I'm guessing that she had not heard of anything like that at the time. And you, you had left for Goose Island to come back and everything's different now. So I'm curious what, what that was like as well. I'm a pretty expressive guy. My dad says, yeah, Andy, you're the loud one of the family. <laughs> so when I had just, you know, had a mountaintop experience and I'm coming home, I don't know exactly what I said, but I'm sure it was loud. <laughs> and my wife knows that and she knows when I get excited. She knows to give me some space and let me figure out my words. And yeah, but she's also, she's a love language gifts person. So her love language is giving things. She always gave cards. And even when we had no money, she was giving people flowers and chocolates and little things. And I didn't deal with that as well as I should have, because I should have encouraged her to give. And a lot of times I'm seeing her giving chocolates to people. We don't eat chocolates. (laughs) So I, I kind of I wish if I had to do it over again, I would have done a lot of things different with my communication earlier in our marriage. And I would have embraced her gift of giving because she has a spiritual gift of giving in addition to the love language of giving. She is a gifted giver. She can see things. She can see needs that other people just can't see. She can ask questions and say, hey, this person needs that. And I say, okay, how much? And and we just have worked together on that. But that doesn't answer your question. So when I came home, I probably said some really stupid things. (laughs) And she... I didn't find out about this until we ended up telling our story at the generosity conference about four years ago, five years ago. And she's saying stuff that I had never heard. You know, I were standing next to each other, all dressed in nice suits and everything. And she said, well, Andy came home and I'm, what? 
She was blown away. Uh, she wants to go to Baby Gap and get all the cute things. And, and you know, in her mind, she's thinking, we're not going to be able to have this stuff. But we've done fine. Granted, we don't have the, the salary. The salary that comes only to us is not as, as much as it could be if God had added in a different arrangement. But we have plenty. And she has embraced giving probably more than I have. She is a... A passionate giver, and it's just been a good, a good blend. The two of us working together. Well, Andy, we have the distinct privilege of talking to some incredibly generous people, and many people who've set finish lines of their own. But I have yet to hear the story where someone says, "We set a finish line, and it was easy. We just followed it, and it was just smooth sailing from that point forward." I'm curious. <laughs> Have you had to make adjustments along the way? What what has been challenging about this process for you and your wife? Well, a couple of things is we lived in a conservative home when we first moved to Dubuque. And uh, then my my son was growing up and he was a wild child at the age of one or two. And I didn't think that he would run across this busy street, but he somehow escaped from the house and started running across the street. We needed to move. You know, it was immediate. And then we find a house that's amazing, but it is beyond our budget. And so what do we do? We did it anyway. <laughs> so it was, it was tight, but oh, we can do it. And oh, it's, it's just, so yeah, we, we stretched a little bit. It wasn't like completely busting the system. It was a little bit of a stretch here and there. And I, I asked some trusted advisors, some good friends of mine who, who knew our story. You know, I probably only told two or three people at that time. And so I'd say, this is what's going on. What do you think? And they say, Andy, just relax. This is a heart issue. This is not, you're not getting a $10 million mansion. You're getting a, you know, a house for your family that will be there for a long time. It wasn't by the numbers perfect all the time. And that bothered me a little bit, but it also, you know, my trusted advisors helped me to see that it's a heart issue. The other thing that was weird is years went by and I thought, what about a CPI raise? Hey, wait, wait, where's my raise? And then I started to get a little bitterness because, doggone it, I'm living on less. I should be, have, you know. And so I went to my trusted friends and I said, what do y'all think? And they said, stop it, Andy. Just give yourself a 2% raise each year like everybody else does or three or four or whatever. Are you doing a good job at your office? Then give yourself a three or 4% raise. So Without community, without people that I was knowing, loving, and trusting and working through that kind of stuff, it would have been really hard and I would have tore myself up or I would have just thrown the whole thing out because I can't do this, you know. So with some loving, trusting friends, it was it was good. That's actually a good point that you bring up. And I know this is true for me, and I would expect that it's true for at least a segment of people that are kind of drawn to the idea of a finish line is basically turning it into a very legalistic system that is really just between you and God. There's no like external anything that says, you know, this is how it's done. And obviously we on our website provide resources for guidance, but even we purposely don't make any kind of a prescriptive, like it should, it needs to be at this level or this or anything like that because it's such a personal process. But I found especially early on, the tendency to really want to like hold on to the numbers. And like you said, kind of beating myself up if, you know, I did, everything didn't fit together just right. 
Maybe you can dig in a little bit deeper into whether you experienced that and then kind of how you combat that. One of the things that we did is my accountant was one of the few people that knew our stuff. I trusted her and I told her everything. I said, here's, here's the story. And she said, okay, I will set it up for you. And so she arranged it so only certain amounts went into our bank account. And it wasn't like we had to uh, get a large amount and then put that away. Oh, it hurt so much. And so she arranged it so that on the one hand, it was, I, I like the idea of writing a check every month for the tithe because it's a physical thing that you do and it's a, it's a worship act. But at the same time, when she held significant portions of funds off and they just went to uh, the donor advice fund, that was, that was very helpful from a logistic standpoint. But every now and then I go to her and I say, well, what do you think about, and she'd always say, absolutely, you know, you can do more for your family if you take, say, $10,000 and do this or that. And she was never legalistic. She was always very graceful. So there, there's certainly been times uh, when the, you know, our kids were teenagers and we wanted to do expensive hobbies. You know, we ended up doing the expensive hobbies just at a little bit toned down manner. My daughter rode horses. And so... She prayed for a black half Arabian, half quarter horse pony. And the next day, somebody came to me and said, hey, I've got a black half Arabian, half quarter horse pony. Do you want it for free? <laughs> so wow. that, was a, that was a huge lesson in, for my daughter for prayer. It's a huge lesson for me to say, okay, this is what I want for you. got to say, Andy, I want you to be in horses. And, you know, I, horses are expensive. It, so yeah, we we worked it out. We ex, I had to depend on that you know, three or four percent increase in pay to cover some of those expenses. But it was interesting. I mean, the, the stories just keep going. <laughs> so you mentioned a couple times that you consulted some trusted advisors or some people close to you when you came up with questions. And I've had Keelan in my life since I was born, obviously, but. From the point I set a finish line forward, as I come across things that I don't understand or things that I'm thinking about, I've always had a sounding board. But I imagine if you didn't, then it can feel pretty lonely. And we've heard that sentiment from previous guests. So I'd love if you could share a little bit more about how you created a group of people that you trusted to talk about these things and what value that has served you as you have gone through life with a finish line? I guess I would say not as well as my brother did. I'll just tell you what my brother did that was amazing. And I, I, I tell this story in the book too, because he was early in the process of figuring out budget, finances, family, and everything else. And he's a spreadsheet guy. He's an engineer, super, super organized. So he's got his big old spreadsheet, figure it all out. And his wife is from Hawaii. So they budget in to go to Hawaii once or twice a year to see family. And uh, they budget in some uh, fair amount of giving. And they said, what do we do? And so they went to a trusted friend and they said, how about I show you our spreadsheet and you show me your spreadsheet and we give real numbers and then hold one another accountable for that. And I was amazed when I heard him tell me this because I, I know my brother, John, is a really amazing planner. He just likes to plan, to plan, to plan. And what that did with he and his friend, it bonded their two families very closely. 
And they did it in a, a good manner. It wasn't, you got to follow the rules. It was, hey, why do you have so much budgeted to go to Hawaii? <laughs> it was, that looks a little funny on your spreadsheet. Can you tell me about that? Oh, okay. Well, yeah. And what are you, what are you doing here? And so they, they did a really good job with that. Personally, I ha- was more of a big picture guy. And I, I had told a couple of trusted friends from residency, but nobody in my town, the people that I talked to about this were, you know, they'd gotten jobs in other towns. And I did. Cody, I said, I felt very lonely when I was trying to discuss these things with actually a really trusted friend in town who was a financial planner. I, I just showed him the, the website, the uh, National Christian Foundation website with my balance on it. And I said, this is what I'm working with. What do you think? And he says, got nothing. <laughs> so that led me to talk to my financial advisor, Rich Vandersand, who said, Andy, you need to go to Generous Giving Conference, which is where you and I met, Cody. And that was the first experience where I said, wow, I'm not alone. It's okay to talk about these things. And when you talk about these things openly and, and can talk about percentages or numbers or concepts, and nobody's saying, oh, look at you, or, hey, I want some of that from you. They're just saying, hey, how are you drawing closer to Jesus through your ministry of giving? Oh, that's the best thing ever. So the experience at the Generous Giving Conference was great. Then we've done a, a jog a weekend to get together and just be open with other folks who are already good friends about this stuff. It was fantastic. You guys know what jogs are. I'm sure you've, you've talked about that. You've had Todd Harper on this. He, he's the guru of all that stuff. Yeah, that's funny. I was actually just going to say, for any listeners that are not as familiar with generous giving or jogs, maybe you could just share a little bit about what a jog is like. <laughs> a great opportunity to dive into the heart of generosity with a guided conversation and a deep guided conversation. So generousgiving.org they have good little videos on that. You can learn a lot real quick. So earlier on, you were talking about you finished those first two years. And then as you became a partner and your income jumped, uh, you started putting everything into the donor advised fund and then realized that you had some serious decisions to make as far as what to do with that. And so I'm curious kind of where you and your wife went from there, what it looked like in the early days of giving and how that has evolved over over time. Yeah, we've been looking at what we're passionate about and where we should give. And if your giving reflects guilt or, oh my gosh, that guy, you know, asked for money, I feel like I should, then it's just messy and it doesn't work. So we were super intentional about it. We set up a list of things that, uh, topics that we're passionate about, caring for the unborn medical missions, evangelism, things that uh, were on our hearts. And so the evangelism in the the downtown area with a after-school program for underprivileged kids, yes, uh, sign me up. I'm all about it. Caring for the unborn kids, yes, I'm all about it. So then what what we did is we kept our giving portfolio kind of small. And they say for an investment portfolio, make it really broad so you have lots of different growth But for our investment portfolio, it was based around our passions. The stuff that we were passionate about, we got deeply involved with a small number of organizations 
and uh, became board members, became active. And so we saw where, where our giving was going. And some of it went well, some of it did not. And we had to pull out, or sometimes I even call it firing a missionary. If they're not doing what they say they're going to do, then we you know, gracefully say, okay, we're going to put our resources elsewhere. And that only comes from intentionally, actually, we did it on paper, writing down, this is what we're going to give towards, which is wonderful because that means you can say no. And one of the cool stories is my friend Brian, we, we were supporting him as a missionary, and he was uh, in the spot where he was asking for a vehicle, and he did the, the right thing. It's like he went to missionary school, and he did the email first, and then the snail mail, and then the text, and you know he's going to call you, and you know what he's going to say, because he's already said it three times. <laughs> he's asking for money for a vehicle. And so I prayed about it each time I got the, the communication, and I, I just felt I'm giving towards what he's doing. I'm giving towards ministry, but I don't want to give towards a vehicle. I, I just, it doesn't fit right. It doesn't sit right with me. So when he called, he said, hey, Andy, it's good to chat with you. And he's an extrovert. He's a, he's a professional chatterbox. And so it was great to chat with him. But he went right into business and he said, hey, I'm, uh, we're going to buy this vehicle. And I was wondering if I could ask you for help with it. And I said, Brian, we love you. We love what you're doing, but we're not going to give to that. And here's why. We're passionate about this and this and this, and uh, we're not going to give to that. And I really, I know God will provide and oh, okay, and he just went on and talked about his kids and my kids. We had a nice conversation, and I didn't hear about it for a year. And he had so many stories about that process of giving. You know, the givers have stories, the receivers have stories. And on that point, a year later, he he says, "Hey, Andy, do you remember when you said no?" I said, "Oh yeah, I remember saying no because that made me nervous." <laughs> he said, "When you said no, I'm not going to give." It filled my heart with joy, and I said, "Whoa." That's weird. Okay, why would you be filled with joy when I'm telling you no? And he said, well, that's because you weren't saying, no, I don't like you. No, I'm not giving to us. You said, no, I'm directing my funds where God has already told me to direct my funds. So he, he was saying, I was so joyful that you were doing what God has you to do, that if I was to try to extract money from you and make it go to another source, that I would be doing something wrong. And a couple of phone calls, you know, later, by the way, we got the money for the people. We're all good. So <laughs> it was just a great, I mean, I have lots of conversations like that with missionaries. And what God does through those little giving stories is he knows where we're at and whatever we need to learn, he's going to teach it in one way or another. I love it when he teaches it through giving. Andy, you said something that really stuck out to me. You said, as we started participating financially with different ministries, you got more involved and you were on boards. And I've heard that enough times now that it seems to be a pretty reliable trend that as you start investing either your time or your money and investing in a big way in a particular cause or a particular ministry, you want to get involved in more ways than just one. I'd, I'd love if you could tell us a little more about how and why you got involved past the point of financial support? Well, for the missions, it was easy because we start by going. If I'm going to go do surgical stuff and my wife is a nurse practitioner, she's going to do medical stuff. We just hop on a plane and go somewhere. And the two of us worked together as a team and it was wonderful. But I've got a little bit of a 
leadership or administrative bone in my body. And so I sit back and I, I look at what the organization's doing. Then I work on their marketing. Then I work on their this and their website and various other things. Next thing you know, I'm a board member. <laughs> or the next thing I know, I'm writing a biography or a book about the organization, the ministry. And so it, to me, it was just a natural outgrowth of what we were doing. And the, it wasn't give money only. It wasn't give of your professional services. It was just be yourself be who God made you to be. And again, it didn't always go well. Sometimes we did stuff and I just, I'm not good at this. I'm going to have to back out. Other times, man, this is a round pegs and round holes. Like my wife is just going on mission trips all the time now. Yeah. It's, it, she's backing off for my son's football season so that she's scheduling her mission trips around football season, which is awesome. Yeah. I think, I think actually partnering with organizations or causes financially can really open our hearts to learning more and just wanting to be a part of what's going on because we're financially invested. I mean, it literally says that in the Bible where your money is, there your heart is. And which came first, the, the chicken or the egg, you know, whether our heart was there first or whether our money was there first. But the, I think God pulls us in more completely than just financially. One of the things I was interested to get your take on is how you have explored the concept of generosity with your kids over the years. And if you have found anything helpful in bringing them up in a culture of generosity, obviously through demonstrating it, which you have, but I, my oldest is six and we have a, a long ways to go. And I'm always eager to find more ways that we can be trying to, to expose our kids. Yeah, we, we started bringing our kids on mission trips when they were six, and they would pack a suitcase full of toys to give to the kids, and that suitcase was full of toys that they purchased themselves. So the first time we did it, when my daughter, who is now 24, she when she was six, we went to Walmart, and she had $56 in her bank account. I said, of the $56, how much do you want to spend on the kids that we're going to go help? And she said, all of it. <laughs> So she saw what we were doing and just modeled it really, really easily. Well, she she bought the stuff with her own money. You know, I, I got it in cash because that's the way six-year-olds can see money. And she had $56.03, I think. And she she gave it to the lady at Walmart. She got the toys. She packed the suitcase. She brought the suitcase there. She gave the toys out one by one. And it was an absolute blessing to watch her work in the, in the clinic and, and take care of the kids. So our other kids kind of did it kind of different ways, but involving them with what we're doing has been our way of working. What are you going to do with your kids? Uh, well, that's one of the questions that I have in my own head is how involved can you get them, you know, how early on? And so I shared this recently, but with our oldest, who's really the only one who has any kind of concept really of numbers and everything, we've started with a small allowance and we're having her, you know, intentionally divided up. But just like with a finish line, she has a little small amount, but it builds up that's de designated for, for giving. And so we're just trying to get her used to the concept of managing something that's set aside not to be spent on herself. And so, yeah, I don't know. We have a long ways to go. And that's why I love having this podcast. I'm always trying to to get people's takes on, <laughs> on what we can be doing better. 
Yeah, every kid's different, so it's not like there's a formula, but find out what, if they're dovetailing with what you're doing, that's great. If they're not, then you find out what they're doing and you dovetail with them, get involved in what they're interested in and find ways to be generous through that. And actually talking about it has been an interesting thing too, because with the kids, we were very open with what we're doing. When we helped an organization get a building, my son, who was 10 years old at the time, sat in with the the guy who was essentially purchasing the building, the real estate agent, and one other guy and my 10-year-old son. So we're doing all this, what's the vision for the organization? What's the building going to be used for and everything else? And then my other kids helped paint and remodel and everything. They were They were part of it. And even to this day, when my son drives by that building in town, he's, you know, he was part of the foundation of that. It was really pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, I love that. I don't have kids yet, but I'm definitely taking my notes so that I can try to figure out how to navigate that well. So you mentioned that you've done some writing and I got a chance to read one of your books, but I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your career as an author and ghostwriter as well. Well, thanks. Yeah, the uh, the first book I wrote was about a missionary, his biography and the story of the mission, and it ended up doing very well. It was kind of required reading if you go to that mission. And the the book was a niche book just for that reason. That book ended up raising a bunch of money. What happened was as I was writing that book, my son, who was probably, I don't know, five at the time, you know, he's watching me write and saying, oh, dad, you know, why don't you write a book about me? You're writing about that guy. Why don't you write about me? And it was Christmas Eve when he told me this. So I said, sure. So I grab a Sharpie piece of paper and I write out the Alex monster, you know, 15, 20 page book with a bunch of little stick drawings. And he loved it. I, I stapled it together. I give it under the tree and he said, dad, let's read it now. And then let's read it for bed. And every night for the next six months, we read it at bedtime. So the following year, as Christmas is coming up, he says, Dad, what what book are you going to write me? Oh, I didn't know I had to do this again. So, okay. And he had just gotten tubes in his ears. And his hockey coach was the doc who put the tubes in his ears. So I came up with this wild, crazy story about losing your baby ears and getting uh, getting your permanent ears back. You know, normal stuff that crazy dads do. So, I I wrote a story for the kids every year and I got bigger and they were the characters. And then as I started writing, I started going to writers conferences. I started helping other people write their stories. I ghost wrote a couple of books. And one time my wife was telling me, honey, you ought to write a book about generosity. And I said, oh, geez, I've read probably, I don't know, 30 or 40 of those books. We don't need another book on generosity. And I said, you know, what you're supposed to say to your wife, no, bad idea, right? (laughs) (laughs) So the next morning, I woke up four o'clock in the morning with 10 chapters of a generosity book outlined in my head. And it was a real challenge because it was going from being very personal. This is my story. I just shared with a a few close friends to saying, oh, I'm going to share this and it's going to be out there. Oh, And it was a challenge. And one of the stories that helped me get inspired to to write this was what I call the raise your hand story. I was at a fundraiser for the downtown Dream Center, and it was the very 
first fundraiser that the organization put on. So the executive director, a very eloquent guy, gets up to a, a, a large group, probably three or 400 people, and he says, hey, at the Dream Center, we're serving 90 kids each day. They used to be getting C's and D's. Now they're getting A's and B's, and we're giving them a community. And so he's given a real good vision. The kids get up and do a little dance. And then one of the other board members gets up, and now it's time for the big ask. And we hadn't talked about it as a board, what we're going to do. And so I'm just thinking, okay, the Bible says, don't let your right hand know what the left hand is doing. So keep your giving private and don't tell anybody except what I had always been doing. So the board member is saying, hey, who's going to help support these kids? And, you know, the kids are standing right there. And $1,200 supports one kid for a year. Who's going to, let's just say support four kids. Let's just round it up $5,000. Who's going to give $5,000? And, you know, I've already, I've given, I've already probably given more than $5,000, but my hands are, you know, in my lap. And I'm looking around and I, I know a lot of the people in the, the meeting a lot of them are just kind of sitting there saying, hey, what's, gonna, what's going on? They don't know that much about this organization yet. And then I see another board member raise their hand and say, oh, I'll give $5,000. Then another one. Then another one. The guy with the microphone is looking right at me. Who's going to give $5,000? And I leave my hands in my lap because I don't want the right hand to know what the left hand is doing. And I think I'm doing the right thing. And then later I realized what they were doing was building momentum so that if other people in the room had seen that hey, these reputable people are giving and they're giving generously, I can give too. So I don't know exactly what was going on at that moment. I don't know if people said, well, Andy's not giving, so I'm not, but I don't know. But I do know that the scripture is more complicated than that. So what I ended up doing is I went back and started studying Matthew 6. And it says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Okay. So, so when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do on the streets to be honored by others. I tell you, they've received their reward in full. When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's what was in my head. So your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is in secret will reward you. And so I'm saying, yeah, see, I did the right thing in my own personal study time. Then I read the rest of the chapter. The very next verse says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love standing in the synagogues on the street corners to be seen. I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go to your room, close the door, pray to the Father who is unseen, and he who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then he gives the Lord's Prayer, which is awesome. And then he goes right into when you fast, don't look all disfigured and stuff. I tell you, people who are acting that way have received their reward in full. When you fast, put on oil on your, uh, you know, it, it goes on talking about this. And so it's fascinating because we want to tell people, hey, I'm praying for you. I am praying for you and I am fasting for you. Jesus doesn't insinuate that you're not supposed to tell people about your prayer life, not supposed to tell people about your fat. You are supposed to tell. You're not supposed to go to the street corners, wave your hands, and act like a super holy person. So my understanding of the right hand and left hand completely changed when I read the rest of Matthew. 
If I raise my hand at the board meeting and say, I'm given $5,000, I am building momentum for that organization. I'm helping that organization. If that's my reward, fantastic. <laughs> my reward is that the momentum is built and the organization does better. So I really uh, had to shift my thinking because if I'm going to write a book on giving, I have to be open with what I'm doing on giving. And it's not about, oh, the left hand can't know what the right hand is doing. Therefore, you're not allowed to talk about this. No, you are supposed to talk about this in a healthy way. And when I went to generous giving conferences and I'm seeing people talk openly about this stuff, oh, I felt so much better that we can chat and we can discuss and I can ask, hey, well, how do you do a matching gift? Hey, what do you, what do you give towards? Do you do just a few or do you do a large number of people? And then we can talk about this stuff in a healthy way. And it's not blowing a trumpet on a street corner saying, look at me, look how great I am. It's saying, come on, guys, let's do well. Let's give well together. And so that's kind of what impressed on me to write the Radical Giving book. It's called Radical Giving. And, you know, doesn't feel radical, but when remarkable generosity sets you free, you know, that's a radical thing and it draws us closer to Jesus. Yeah. Andy, in your book, Radical Giving, you list stories of other radically generous people. And I'm curious how you went about finding those stories and if those served as encouragement for you. Well, I keep finding new ones, you know, George Mueller is a new one that wasn't in the book. And when I read his story, I was so glad that somebody published his journal. It was just George Mueller writing stuff down. Because he wrote it down, I am blessed. So he wrote that story. There's lots of other ones. Uh, Francis Chan has a great story of he asked God, how much should I give this year? And the numbers was just more than he had made the previous year. God, how can I possibly do that? And then the, the numbers happen. And then after two or three years of doing this, numbers raise and raise. And then all of a sudden, God says, give a million dollars. And seriously, no, he's a pastor. And then, you know, that's when Crazy Love came out, which I think was a inspirational book for you, right, Gielan? That was a, yep. that book didn't just bless uh, Francis Chan financially. That blessed people like you and me and so I, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer in the testimony of books and telling stories well. And when we tell the stories well, it gives other people a chance to be inspired, to learn from other people's mistakes and uh, to say, yeah, that's what I'm doing with my life. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, I do. I have a bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of stories in here from a bunch of people and they're all intentional. I, I, there's a whole bunch that ended up on the cutting room floor, but the ones that are in there, each story tells a, a specific point, and those points are what guide us towards radical generosity. So you've thought things through very clearly through your whole generosity career, I guess, if you want to say it that way. I'm interested for what God's doing in your heart today, how he's stretching you today, what you see on the horizon as far as, as where he's leading you. Today is a challenge. At the same time that the world was shutting down, I was going through some series of surgeries that ended up ending my career. So I'm not a big fan of neck surgeons, Keelan, so we can talk about that later. <laughs> the surgeries were done very well. Uh, everything was successful, but I'm no longer able to get my head into a position that you need to be in to do surgery. 
So I'm officially, I'm disabled. What that does for me, the plan that I got in Goose Island is, oh, shoot, what do I do now? I no longer have a job that's producing a high income. I'm on disability. But God also, he put a lot of wise counselors in my, in my path, and I got extra disability insurance. And so I'm not on a minimum wage right now. I'm doing fine. And so we're still able to send my wife on hundreds of mission trips. I don't know how many she goes on a year. <laughs> so we're still able to do that. We're still able to, to be generous. But I no longer have a set formula that God gave me at Goose Island because I don't have the structure. We are doing our best to figure it out, all fresh, all new. And I, lo- I, I would love to say, yeah, this has been easy because, you know, whatever. No, it's hard. If you lose your work, you kind of lose a lot. It, it was a mourning period. Let's see, the Sunday after I was declared disabled, I met with my friend and personal physician, and I said, I'm not able to be an oral surgeon anymore. Can you help me? And he looked at me and he said, Andy, you're financially conservative. You don't get your identity from your work, and you're good at a lot of other things too. You're going to be just fine. (sighs) That made the world of difference to me because he kind of, you know, he read my mail. And I don't know if it was him talking or God talking through him. So we are trying to live on the same amount that we had lived on before. Our disability income, it covers that and more. So we're still able to be generous. We're able to prepare for the future. And I'm shifting my career from being an oral surgeon who writes to being a retired oral surgeon who writes full-time now and does ghostwriting and writing coaching. So that's my new passion. It's what I'm doing. It's what gets me up in the morning. Well, Andy, we, we like to wrap up every episode with what we call the manager's minute. And we just set aside a little bit of time to talk about a practical step that our listeners can take to better step into the role as a steward and to better manage God's wealth in a wise way. So I'm wondering if you have any suggestions for our listeners and how they can do that. Oh, that's a great question. And I love your manager's minute. I learned a lot when I listened to this. I guess what I would say is as a guy who's really enjoyed George Mueller's story, lots of other stories along the way, if those stories weren't written down, I would have been less well off. So there are hundreds of people in today's current society who have amazing stories and you haven't shared them yet. So sharing your story, whether it's in a small group, whether it's in a written version or whether it's writing your book, write your story, share it, put your story out there so that other people can learn from what God has shown you in your life. So if you've got a story of generosity and you'd love to share. That's kind of what I do. It's a little bit of a shameless plug. So <laughs> thanks for the shameless plug, Cody and Keelan. But andydewittwrites.com is my website. And I do writing coaching. I do ghostwriting. And I, I've got a free gift. If people are interested in the ghostwriting process, you can go to andydewittfree.com. And that'll take you straight to a gift where I can give you a little bit of a book that shows the, the, the writing process and what's involved. And I can help if you want, but the the basic gist of it is the right hand and the left hand not knowing 
what they're doing does not mean you're not allowed to talk about giving. It means you don't shout it in an inappropriate way and give attention for yourself that's going to give a bad name to Jesus. Sharing what you're giving and sharing your heart of generosity helps others to have a heart of generosity. Yeah, I definitely agree with that sentiment. And I think generous giving would as well. And I think a common objection that people have when we ask them if they'd be interested to share their story like you are today is just what you're saying. And I know it comes from a place of of humility, but sharing stories can be so powerful in ways that we may never realize. So if you're listening to this and you know that you have a story, but you're hesitant to share it, I would just encourage you, reach out to Andy, reach out to someone close to you and share your story because it can be such a blessing. God can use your story and will use your story in incredible ways. But thank you so much for being here and sharing your story, Andy, with us today. It's been a a blessing to have you and to hear from you. it's, It's my pleasure. You guys do a great job here. I really want you to do lots more of these podcasts. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we'd love to hear from you. And now a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who's living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we'd love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't need to have all the answers. Just a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you could connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. And finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 54. That's it for today. We'll see you next time. <music>